0: So what does it mean to stand firm in the real grace of Jesus as I walk through my real life day by day? That's, that's the question we've been trying to answer uh, by exploring 1 Peter since January because Peter said himself that was the purpose of his letter. At the end of the letter he said, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true or real grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so we have been looking at what Peter means when he says uh, that we should stand firm in the real grace of God as we walk through our real lives. Um, in your bulletin on the sermon notes page, I put kind of my summary of a review of First Peter so far. This is this is what I wrote. Peter is saying, Be who you are in Christ where you are in the world. So be who you are in Christ because of his real grace, where you are in the world because that's your real life. And do this for God's glory, for your neighbor's good, and your gladness. Be prepared to suffer for living this way by entrusting yourself to Jesus who suffered for you. So the last time we were in 1 Peter together uh, two weeks ago, we saw that one of the most important ways that we are to be who we are in Christ, where we are in the world, is to submit ourselves vertically to Jesus as we submit, like Jesus, horizontally to the people he's given us. Ah, uh, So that, that word, submission, the word that he keeps saying as he says, be subject over and over again in this book, is, is a Greek word that means literally to place under. It was used uh, in military language to, to mean to arrange troops under a commander to accomplish a mission. It means, one commentator says, a readiness to renounce my will for the sake of others, to place myself under others for their sake. It means to place yourself under a larger plan. This is what Peter means By submission. And he recognizes that these new believers in Christ, to whom he's writing, are already subject to others in the larger plan of their society, of of the way things are structured in their world. They're already placed under others in every human institution. They were citizens to the government, slaves to masters, wives to husbands. Now he asks them to be subject in those structures. In a way that no one else does it. Be subject like Jesus and suffer as you serve those you've been placed under. That's what Peter's asking his readers to do. And we've said, I said this a couple of weeks ago, Peter's not suggesting uh, that they have a social revolution. He's actually uh, calling for a spiritual revolution. He's not asking them to overthrow societal structures he's asking them to subvert them by living like jesus and and that's what jesus did he lived uh, his life not overthrowing all the societal structures but changing them from the inside out because the way sin came into the world was through two individuals and it corrupted them then it corrupted their relationship and their relationships with others, it eventually corrupted all societal structures. And so, Peter is just taking that same order. Uh, The gospel transforms individuals, and those transformed individuals then have transformed relationships, and ultimately, eventually, those transformed people and relationships transform society. So today we're turning our attention to what Peter says submission to Jesus looks like for wives and then for husbands. And I need to pray. Father God, um, we need your help. Um, These are hard words. Um, Perhaps harder words to our culture than to us because we 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 get what you're trying to do, but they're still hard because we're sinners because we we buck against submission and particularly the kind of submission that Jesus modeled for us, um, a suffering kind of service that risks life. God, you're calling us to, to do something that um, is very difficult. and So we ask for your help this morning to hear your voice, not mine. Father, I've, I come to this passage as one who has failed again and again and again to submit to Jesus in my marriage. So all of us are also in that boat. Um, we ask that you would help us to hear you speaking. And would you show us Jesus? Show us his beauty, we ask in his name. Amen. So I suppose that uh, you know, many of you may know, if you work for a company, you may know what the mission or vision statement of your company is. Perhaps if you're a student, you, you may have been Taught the mission and vision statement of your school, uh, and you know if you're like most people, you learned that mission vision statement and you set it aside and you did whatever you thought was best. But uh, I wonder, do you have a mission or vision statement for your marriage? By the way, yes, this sermon is focused on husbands and wives. This does not mean God doesn't care about those who don't have husbands and wives. He addresses addresses. Uh, people who don't have husbands and wives in other places. So today, bear with me uh, as we focus on husbands and wives. But do you have a mission statement for your marriage? Well, as you may have guessed, I'm going to give you one. The Bible teaches us that we were created and redeemed to put God on display to the world by the way we relate to the people in our world. So every marriage, every family, every friendship, every church really has the same mission statement. We were made to put God on display by the way we relate to one another. And so when we read in Genesis, uh, speaking of particularly the marriage between a man and woman, he made them in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He made them in his likeness. That means that Uh, The man and the woman in their marriage are to represent and resemble God by relating the way God relates. Remember, we've said this before, God is a trinity, a three-in-one God. He is the original relationship. And so we were made in the image of the relationship. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I love the way uh, Dr. Larry Crabb describes uh, what it means to represent and resemble God by relating the way God relates. He says, From all eternity, each person of the Trinity gives to the other two and receives from the other two, always moving toward the others to give and always remaining open to receive. And that's how God relates to us. He's always moving toward us to give us everything we need, and He's always open to receive from us everything. It brings us joy to give. So the Trinity is a three-in-one relationship of mutual submission and service, of moving toward one another, of receiving from one another. And God, in his wisdom, chose to create a two-in-one model to reflect and resemble and to represent that relationship So marriage is a two-in-one relationship of mutual submission and service, of moving toward one another, receiving from one another. It's it's a a you-first partnership where we look at one another and say, no, you first. And so men and women have different roles to play in, in reflecting God's image relationally. Men were made to move toward. Men were made to move with courage and purpose into the chaos and mystery of life to offer life. Women were made to openly receive life that is offered and to cultivate its beauty, its goodness, its flourishing. And without going into too much detail, just consider the way we were physically made. Men were made to move into chaos and mystery to offer life, women made to openly receive life and to cultivate its flourishing. So we were created to put our three-in-one God on display to the world by the way we relate to one another in mutual submissive service in our You First marriages. But, as we know, the first married couple turned their you-first marriage into a me-first mess. And we have been there ever since. And so now marriage needs to be redeemed. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came as the bridegroom to make us his bride. Jesus moved toward us and entered into the dark chaos of our sin and brokenness. Jesus opened himself to receive our sin and the death it deserved, so that he could forgive it. He could cleanse us and renew us and restore us. And then he poured his life out for us and into us so that his beauty and his goodness would flourish in us the way it was meant to. Jesus created and redeemed marriage. And now, through Jesus, marriages can have this vision and mission. Our marriages were created and redeemed to put Jesus on display to the world by the way we relate to one another. So now, let's come back to 1 Peter. We see that Peter has been saying all along that all of us, as God's elect exiles, have been created and redeemed to put Jesus on display to the world by the way we relate to the people in our world. For example, he said in chapter 2 earlier, a few weeks ago, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then a few verses later, he said, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, doing good and suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That your life of suffering service may trace the suffering servant Jesus and display him to the people in your world. And so in these last few weeks, we've heard Peter say that one powerful way Maybe not the only way, but one powerful way that we're to put Jesus on display is by being subject to the people He's given us in the places He's put us. Even to the point of suffering in our submission, so that our suffering and submissive service allows others to see Jesus on display in us. And so we look at marriage. We heard in Philippians 2 this morning that Jesus did nothing uh, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counted others more significant than himself, who is ultimately significant. He looked to their interests. Though he is God and equal with God, he did not consider that something to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And now Peter is going to show us how to live and love like that in our marriages. That though we are equal as husbands and wives, we don't consider that something to be held on to. But we take the form of suffering servants and we submit to Jesus by submitting to one another, even if it costs us everything. So, let's get into this text. Let's look at how Peter describes This kind of marriage he says likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that they see your respectful and pure conduct then in verse seven he says likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman what is this word likewise it it means in a similar but in not exact way and it's referring back to chapter 2 verse 13 where peter said that we are to be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution and, and hear me say, Peter is not comparing wives to slaves, even though that was the group of people he re, he addressed just before wives. No, instead, he's saying that submission in marriage is similar to, but not exactly like, submission as citizens or submission in the workplace. Peter's saying, be subject to the Lord, uh, be subject for the Lord's sake. And we learned a few weeks ago that what that means is that Christian submission is part of our submission to Jesus, it's proof of our submission to Jesus, it's powerfully effective for Jesus, and it's a picture of authentic Christianity. And So now Christian wives are to submit to their husbands in that way, and Christian husbands are to live with their wives in a way that shows that they are submitting themselves to Jesus. Peter says, that's powerful. So let's look first at what Peter says um, to wives and then husbands. And and wives may be wondering, well, how come there's six verses for us and one for the husband? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Yes, it should, at least for this husband. I need 600 verses. Um, But you have to understand that in that culture, wives would not be addressed at all. Because it was assumed you just do whatever your husband does. So Peter is elevating wives to a place where they're there, they're paid attention to, they're valued. And he wants to instruct these Christian wives on how to best live in the marriages they've been given. Um, so it's actually encouraging that he focuses and talks to them as much as he does. Now, before we get any further, I want to make sure you understand what submission is not, according to these verses. So, fasten your seatbelt, seven things that submission is not in your marriage, according to these verses. Um, This is with a little help from Wayne Grudem and John Piper. First of all, submission does not mean putting your husband in the place of Christ, And most of you are saying, I'm not tempted to do that. But submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. The whole context of these passages assumes that allegiance to Christ takes priority over all human allegiances. She submits to her husband for the Lord's sake, but he, her husband, is not her Lord. So whenever she must choose between the two, she's going to choose Jesus. And as Peter said in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, she does it in a way that traces the pattern of Jesus. Remember his example? He committed no sin, no deceit was in his mouth. He did not speak harshly when spoken harshly to. He did not threaten, but he continually entrusted himself to the one who would one day judge. So submission doesn't mean putting the husband in the place of Christ. Christ is whom she submits to first. Second, submission does not mean giving up independent thought, just doing whatever you're told and don't think for yourself. Peter is speaking directly to wives, as I said in this passage. Um, So what Peter is saying is, wives, you don't have to leave your brain at the wedding reception. You do not have to give up independent thought. Third, submission does not mean wives should give up efforts to influence and guide her husband peter is helping wives influence their husbands but there's a particular way to do that that he's going to teach us in a few minutes that is powerfully effective a christian wife wants her husband to live for jesus and she can influence that peter says stay tuned for how fourthly submission does not mean a wife should give in to every demand of her husband and agree with everything Suppose her husband says, stop being a Christian and believe what I believe. Well, she should say, no, I don't agree, and I can't stop. This is why Peter warns these women that they may suffer for their submission to Jesus as Lord because they can no longer say what people in that culture said, Caesar is Lord. Suppose he says, "Let's hey, let's do this unholy thing you fill in the blank of what he might ask her to do or participate in peter says no your conduct must be pure so it doesn't mean that a submission doesn't mean that a wife does whatever her husband demands of her fifth submission does not mean being fearful or timid you know cowering in submission before him Peter tells wives in verse 6 not to give way to fee, to fear. Submitting like Jesus submits takes courage and strength. Sixthly, submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ, husband and wife being equal in Christ. Submission, in, submission does not mean they're not equal. We have to remember that biblically, submission is in regard to roles, and it's consistent with equality and importance, dignity, and honor. Jesus, for example, was subject to his parents, though he created them. He was more than equal. Jesus submitted to God the Father, though he is equal to him. And so, though Peter describes the different roles of wives and husbands here, he affirms their equal relationship to God in Christ by saying that they are heirs together of the grace of life. And then finally, submission does not mean getting all of your spiritual strength through your husband. In this situation, this woman's husband is not a believer, so he's not giving her any spiritual strength, yet clearly she has lots of spiritual strength because her hope is in Jesus. And so what Peter said in chapter 1 applies to these wives and every wife. You have been born again to a living hope in Christ. You're being kept for an inheritance that is being kept for you until the day you see Jesus. So then, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus is fully and finally revealed. Submission is not getting all of your spiritual strength through your husband. A lot of you, if you're going to try that, are going to die on the vine. Set your hope in Jesus. So, if that's what submission is not, then what is it? What does it look like for Christian wives to submit to Jesus in their marriages? He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, obey the, the message about Jesus, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and pure conduct he says so that be subject so that for what purpose all christian obedience has a vertical and a horizontal purpose it's vertical it's for the lord's sake it's horizontal it's for the sake of others and so it is with the wife's submission to her husband it has that same twofold purpose she submits for the lord's sake but she also submits for her husband's sake And what is that purpose specifically? It's for the sake of their husband's greatest need. And the greatest need of every husband is that he be one to Jesus so that he submits himself to obey the word of Jesus. Peter said, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. Peter's goal is, is that men be one to Jesus so that they would submit themselves to obey the word of Jesus? So, how can a Christian wife participate in this? Peter says, by living an attractive life. Not by wooing him to her beauty, but by wooing him to the beauty of Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, attract your husbands with external behavior, not external beauty. He says, that your husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Don't let your adorning be external. Peter's telling her to attract her husband to Jesus by wearing the respectful and pure behavior of Jesus. He's, He's telling these women to do something absolutely remarkable, and that is to be completely committed to the glory of God, while at the same time completely committed to the good of their husbands, even though they don't believe in God. And if these men see a woman do that, they're completely devoted to Jesus while completely serving humbly this man who doesn't know Jesus, is he not going to think something strange? Is he not going to say, none of my friends' wives love me like you love me? But then he says that external behavior comes from an internal beauty. So Peter in verse 3 tells these wives what not to wear. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. He's not suggesting that you never braid your hair. He's not suggesting that you never put on jewelry or else he'd also be suggesting that you never wear clothing because he lists all those three. And that would get awkward. Um, The point is, it's not about whether you can look pretty. It's a matter of priorities. Outer beauty is fine, but inner beauty is first. So in verse 3, he tells him what not to wear. In verse 4, he says, say yes to this dress. Let your adorning be the hit. Thank you let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Hmm, this sounds like Jesus. Isaiah 53, 2 says, Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire. He was despised and rejected. Jesus had no physical beauty that we should be impressed with him. He's not much to look at. Oh, but his heart, the heart of Jesus. This is why so many people were drawn to him. Not because he looked good, because he is good. Jesus had an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But wait a minute, I thought Peter used those words to describe women Well, listen to what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 11. He said, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Peter is not saying that a gentle and quiet spirit is a womanly quality. He's saying it's a Jesus quality. I don't know if you've heard all your life that uh, women are just supposed to have a gentle and quiet spirit. It's, it's not a feminine thing, it's a Jesus thing. He's asking them to have a heart like Jesus. Gentle means humble. A, a quiet spirit is a spirit that's at rest. So a Christian wife can have a humble, restful heart like Jesus because she humbly rests her heart in Jesus. She submits to Jesus when he says, learn from me and you will find. You will find rest for your souls. I want to ask, particularly the young women in our congregation, are you cultivating your relationship with Jesus? Are you cultivating the inner beauty of your heart? Because that's what he wants first and foremost. And I can tell you, you come and ask me, who, who can teach me how to develop that kind of inner beauty? I have a whole, there's a whole long list of women in this church who have exactly what Peter's describing. I've been here long enough to see it. So wives, woo your husbands to the beauty of Jesus as he sees it in you. And then finally, in verse 5, Peter says that as the church's next top models, Christian wives should imitate Israel's past top models. So, as women who live as models of Jesus, who adorn the beauty of Jesus, wives, look to the models who came before you and see how they adorn themselves with the beauty of Christ. He says in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Friends, I spent hours on this verse this week. This is so confusing and confounding. Um, And I was glad to know that many, many scholars disagree on exactly how Sarah illustrates what Peter is saying, but the fact is he's using Sarah as an illustration of what he's been asking Christian wives to do, and that is to adorn the beauty of Jesus. So, first of all, he's replacing the model of the virtuous wife that the Greek writers offered, and he's replacing that with the story of God's people and the story of Sarah. He's asking these women to quit listening to the culture and listen to the story that God has been telling. He's inviting these once pagan but now Christian women to see themselves as living in a different story, in a different family, in a different people and nation, in a different culture than the culture that surrounds them. That they're living on a different journey with a different destination. So I ask you, whose story is shaping who you are as a wife. Israel's top model was Sarah, apparently, and women like her because, Peter says, she was a holy woman who hoped in God and she did what was good and did not fear anything that was frightening. Those two things go together. She was a holy woman. She did what was good. She hoped in God, therefore she did not fear. This is the kind of heart that Jesus wants to develop in you as a wife. That you're a holy woman who does what is good. And you hope in God and you do not fear what may happen when you live for her, live for him uh, in your marriage. And there were moments, I'm not going to go into Sarah's story. It, we don't have time. But if you email me, I'll send you some stuff to read. But the bottom line is that there were moments in her life when Sarah obeyed Abraham in ways that forced her to hope in God and not in her husband. Forced her to do what was good while trusting God, even when it was scary. And no, she didn't call him Lord because he, she worshipped him. That was just a, it was because she respected him. It was a respectful term, much like the way we say, yes sir, no sir. Um, In that time, um, that's how women express their respect for their husbands. You figure out your way to express your respect for your husband. I would not suggest you call him Lord. Just because Christine does that at our house, (laughs) you laugh because you know there ain't no way that she does that. Uh, And then Sarah obeyed Abraham. This is a different word. I tried to get around this. It is a different word than the submission word. She obeyed him. He told her to do some stupid things. Fair enough, though. He obeyed her a couple of times, too. Um, but this, this word is, is not the same as submission. This is more of an example of submission. Submission is to place oneself under a larger plan. obedience um, is a way to do that. So, the church's next top model is a holy woman who hopes in God. Peter is urging wives to do do just that because that's what Jesus did. He lived a holy life as he hoped in his father. Now, I have to, and I apologize that this is a little longer than normal, but it's important that we talk about these things. I have a note here. What about abusive husbands? Peter is not asking you to stay in an abusive relationship. Women, so hear me say this right now. Submission to a man who abuses you is not what Peter is saying. Is not what God wants for you. So I urge you, if you're in that kind of relationship, come to us for help. Your elders... We will help you. If you're in that kind of relationship and you need to call the authorities, call the authorities. But Peter is not asking women to submit to a man who abuses them. And it's clear that Peter is not favorable to these abusive situations because of the way he speaks to husbands. So let's end there. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what does submission to Jesus look like for husbands? He says, likewise. In other words, a husband's motivation is also vertically for the Lord's sake, horizontally for my wife's sake, so that I can display the beauty of Jesus in the way I relate to her. He says, it's funny that he has to command husbands to live with your wives. Dwell with her is what it means. Be with her. And then actually it's not so strange that he has to command men to live with their wives because I'd like to ask some of us, including myself sometimes, men, where are you? Where are you? I think your wife might want to know where you are sometimes too. Are you with her? Are you engaged with her? I don't mean with a diamond. I mean, are you engaged soul to soul with her? Moving toward her? Are you touching her with your head and your heart and not just your hands? Live with your wife. Live with your wife in an understanding way. I once heard about a book that was called Understanding Women. I expected it would be multi-volume. Surprisingly, it was thin. And the bottom line of the book was understanding women mainly requires men to be understanding of their women. And that's what Peter's saying. He says, live with her in an understanding way. That literally means live with her according to knowledge. According to knowledge. Husbands ought to live with their wives in accordance with the knowledge they have of Jesus, His love for them, His love for her, and what it looks like to suffer in order to serve, serve her. We have to love and serve our wives in harmony with what we know the Bible says it means to live like Christ by the power of Christ's Spirit. So that means, men, that we're going to have to be learning We're going to have to learn from God's word what it means to live like Jesus with our wives. And that's what a disciple means. Disciple literally means a learner. So I'm asking my brothers, are you investing your time and energy into learning what God's word says it looks like for you to be with and like Jesus? And if you're not, we'll help you. That's what we're here for. But it also means that you're learning who your wife is. Are you taking time to learn her? Study her? Just like we want to learn and know all that we can about God, and yet there's a certain point to where it's just mystery. Same with your wife. Learn all you can and know about her, but at some point, you're going to run into mystery. It's okay. But are you moving toward that? Are you moving toward her to learn who she is? And then finally, Peter says, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Here we go. Weaker vessel. He's not saying that women are weaker morally, weaker intellectually, weaker spiritually. We know that. He is saying that in general, because of the way we are created, they tend to be weaker physically. Now, even saying that, I'm, I'm telling you, not, you know this, I know this, not every woman is physically weaker. First of all, exhibit A, women have babies. Case closed. Who, who's stronger? Um, I cannot keep up with Christine's pace when we go on a hike. My cousin was a bodybuilder. She could snap my arms off without thinking about it. Okay. So it's not it's not always that women are weaker. Here's the point. When we moved last year, I marked certain boxes that I packed with the word fragile. Because what's inside that box is delicate and precious and I don't want it broken. I want it to be handled with care. And I think that's what God is saying to us as husbands. What I've entrusted to you is delicate and precious. Handle her with care. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, we are co-heirs. We are heirs together of the grace of Jesus. And so our marriage is a Christ-centered community. We are both sons and daughters of our Father through Jesus. We are equal partners. We are intimate allies. We both have a living hope in Jesus and we're both waiting for Him to return. So we're heirs together of the grace of life. And then finally He says, do this, live with your wife in this way so that your prayers may not be hindered. What could He mean? First of all, yeah. Your prayers represent your own intimate relationship with your Father. And if the one He's entrusted to me is not being cared for by me, how can I claim to have this intimate relationship with my master when I'm not stewarding well the woman he's given me? That's one way he means your prayers can be hindered. But there's another way. What about the prayers that husbands and wives pray together, we were taught to pray the Lord's Prayer. That's a prayer about being on mission with Jesus in the world. If we are not loving each other in these ways that Peter describes, then our prayers to advance God's kingdom through our marriage will be hindered. So, wow. Once again, the bar is way too high. To put Jesus on display by the way I love and serve my wife, to put Jesus on display to the world by the way wives love and serve their husbands, that's impossible. It, the bar's too high, the bar's too low. I will not stoop that low. And yes, this is why you and I need Jesus. This is why you and I need to believe that as Tim Keller said, if each of us, if the husband and the wife would each say to the other, I will treat my selfishness as the main problem in our marriage, then great things can happen. Because ultimately, that's why Jesus came to suffer and serve us. Because our me-first hearts get in the way of the reason and the way He designed us to live. And so we must say to Him and to our spouses, my me-first heart is the main problem in our marriage, and I'm going to run to Jesus. Father, would You take all of these many words, oh my goodness, and would You help us Um, help us to run to Jesus. We desperately need Him if we are going to display Him to the world. And would you now encourage us in this sacrament of baptism, encourage us that you have pledged your faithfulness to us. You have pledged to wash us clean and to make us new. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.